Hello and welcome to The Coping Toolbox, a child psychology podcast hosted by clinical psychologists Dr. Layla Din Osman, Dr. Mary Simmering McDonald, and Dr. Jennifer Rend. We hope that this podcast helps parents, children, and teens learn new coping skills in dealing with their stress and anxiety and to help strengthen relationships in their lives. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Coping Toolbox, a child psych podcast. I'm Dr. Mary Simring McDonald, and I'm so excited to be joined by the incredible psychologist and author, Dr. Maggie Mammon, so that she can share some of her knowledge and insight with us today. Maggie is an award-winning clinical family psychologist and best-selling author who now consults with parents in a multidisciplinary private practice in Ottawa. She has worked with children, adolescents, and families in hospital, university, school board, and private practice settings, and was the first elected president of the College of Psychologists of Ontario. She enjoys providing workshops and presentations to parents, community groups, and professionals, both nationally and internationally. Maggie's books include The Pamper Child Syndrome, which has been published in six languages, and Understanding Nonverbal Learning Disabilities, A Common Sense Guide for Parents and Professionals. She and her husband are relieved that their three children managed to reach adulthood relatively unscathed. They are now the doting grandparents of four little ones and own a large, lovely, but compliance challenge dog, who happens to be adorable, by the way. I also had the great fortune of having Maggie as my mentor and supervisor during my registration year. I learned so much from her and I'm very excited that she's joining us today. So thank you so much for being here, Maggie. I'm so happy to have you here. You're welcome. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. We're happy to have you. And when we first started thinking about this episode, you right away had a pretty clear sense of what you wanted to talk about in terms of parents getting it together. Um, Can you give us an idea of what made you think of this and what we are referring to? Yeah, sure I can. It's it's actually been uh, the kind of thing that that I've been working with for a long time, which is the idea that parents really are the best people to deal with their children's issues. Um, And especially with uh, the amazing increase in what are being called mental health problems in children and adolescents during the pandemic and the fact that there aren't enough therapists and everybody's got waiting lists and all that kind of thing. And, And my approach has always been that you know, we as therapists, we're hired help. We're only part-time, we're temporary, we come and we go. Whereas parents are there the whole time with their children. And especially now when they're kind of, um, they're closeted with their children, you know, and so they're seeing a lot of issues and you can't always run to an expert. And my view is that that the experts in their children are the parents. And so I've really felt that, you know, if, if I can help parents get their shit together, you know, because often parents really fall apart when their children are falling apart. Um, Then we've got permanent therapists with the children. We've got people who at least have got some confidence 
in dealing with their own children. Um, and, you know, I, I'm a bit on a bit of a soapbox within our profession, you know, saying that we are hired help, you know, we're not there when the children are having a meltdown or when, you know, something really is, is going pear-shaped and the parents don't know what to do. And, and what I find when I'm meeting with parents is that they've lost their confidence generally. You know, parents feel that they don't have the skills to deal with children in this in this world of technology and, and they feel that uh, in some respects they're, they're not required. Uh, children have all kinds of rights for decision-making when they're younger and younger and younger and, and parents feel that they're a little bit dispensable. Um, and so my philosophy has been, and certainly over the last few years where I've worked exclusively with parents, is my philosophy is that I'm more like a, a management consultant. You know, I'm kind of trying to stand behind the parents, trying to help them get their act together. Because when parents have their act together, then what I found is that the children's problems will sometimes go away, sometimes at least settle down, or at least parents feel that they can, can manage them. So that, that's why I'm really, really focusing on parents. So this is a really got a good opportunity to, to espouse my views on that. Yeah, it's, it's such a helpful way of looking at it because it's really coming from this model of empowerment and, you know, kind of helping parents have a clear sense of direction for their family. And in doing that can create a lot of um, security within the family. Absolutely. That's what it's all about, you know, is, is that parents are the secure base for their children. Um, and they continue to be, you know, it, it's not that suddenly when they turn 13, they don't need you anymore. I mean, our children are now in their 40s, all of them, and yet I still feel I have a role as a mum. It's certainly a different job description, and I talk to parents a lot about job descriptions, um, because certainly you have to shift your job description as your children get older. And, you know, of course, all the parents that you and I see are very motivated to, to get things fixed. Um, so the whole idea that you know, you can um, adjust your own job description so that you can fulfill your job description. You can be a good mom or a good dad. But being a good mom or a good dad when your child is four is very different than when your child is 14. And so yeah. being able to, you know, rather than hang on to the old way of doing things, you have to readjust, you adjust your role a little bit. The child is getting more competent to take, take on some of the responsibility and accountability. And so that it, it shifts a little bit, but... Another thing that I really believe very, very strongly is that the family is a very intelligent unit. Yes. When one thing changes, other people adapt around it. Families get very used to doing things the way they do them. And sometimes an outsider would say, oh, that doesn't look like something I would do. Well, it may not be something you would do, but it seems to me families adjust to the circumstances that they're living in. And I've certainly seen that happen during the pandemic. People are adjusting to all kinds of circumstances. We don't necessarily like it, but we develop ways of dealing with it. And, you know, I, I'm always trying to kind of disabuse parents of the notion that there's a right way to do it. Yeah. There isn't a right way to do it. If there were, we'd all be doing it and we wouldn't have any problems. But parenting is an incredibly interactive job. Um, as you know, you have more than one child. We have three children and you know that you can't do the same thing to each child. It works with one, it doesn't work with another one. And the reason for that is because they have their own personalities, they have their own way of feeding back to us. So, you know, as what I would call the managers in the family, the parenting team, we're the ones who sort of oversee that, but we need to be flexible enough to adjust to that. So 
parents are often trying to, you know, they come because they feel they're not doing it right and they're apologizing, oh, it's, it's my fault. No, 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 that F word is never used. We don't use fault. Yeah. Um, you know, we look at choices we make and sometimes the choice we made yesterday isn't the one we need to make today. So there's that constant dynamic in a family, in parenting, uh, and the need to adjust to all of these unforeseen circumstances. Not, none of us would have foreseen yeah. what was going to happen over the past year and a half. And if somebody had said to me, like, you're still going to be doing this a year, in a year and a half's time, I would have gone, no, of course not. Um, but we are, and we've, we've adjusted, and that's intelligent behavior. Yeah, you know, right now, this pandemic is really a time where many parents are struggling. And you're right, they've had to make so many adjustments within their families. It's actually amazing what families have been able to do during this time. And, you know, even seeing the the kids and the teens um, struggling throughout, it's really surprising that they're not struggling more in many ways. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think part of that is that all of the things that normally we use as stress reducers, we can't do. Yeah. We can't go out and meet with friends. We can't go play in the, you know, until recently go play in the park or um, we can't do the sports that we're interested in. We can't even do the music that we, you know, that we've been maybe in lessons or voice lessons or choirs we can't do those things so all of the things that we we've used and our family has used as a way of reducing the stress have been taken away from us and I think the worst thing is is the unknown we don't know when it's all going to come back exactly. you know we, nobody's saying oh yes you know by the end of June or they do say it or by the end of June this will happen then the goalposts get moved and then it's not happening the whole going back to school thing, there were so many families that I'm involved with who are so looking forward to the children at least getting two or three weeks of school. Uh, then that didn't happen. So everybody's let down again. So you never kind of get the reinforcement, or at least you get it in certain ways, but you don't get the kind of reinforcement that says, great, you've done it. It's over. We can move on. It's so tough to operate without predictability. It's, it's just really hard to kind of feel that sense of security. And I think that's why, you know, now more than ever, a lot of our efforts are geared toward helping parents who are understandably struggling so much so that they feel that they can create as much security as possible within their own families. But you're right that so much has been that lost during this time or we're disconnected from so much that's really helpful in terms of our coping and even coming at it from that sort of village model, you know, um, losing that village entirely. Yes. Yeah. And, and then, you know, there, there are a number of families that I've been in touch with through the pandemic who, who just have one child, the child is fairly young. Um, they're, they're trying to balance doing too much for the child. Yeah not enough and you know it's it's been a bit of a trend over the last two or three decades where parents really feel that their main job is to entertain their children and to you know enrich their children and to be there for their children to the point where the whole the whole couple thing starts to diminish and diminish and diminish and the children become very powerful um and the, the parents are and, and especially when you only got one because you don't have the other one to balance it or other children to balance it. And the child doesn't have a chance to learn the social learning piece that, oh, if I do what my brother just did, I'm gonna get in trouble. Or if I do what, so that's a good thing because mom and dad, but they don't have that opportunity. So I'm seeing a number of parenting couples where they're too over-involved with their child, like they're too enmeshed with their child. And so the whole idea of how are these children ever gonna separate to go back 
or trust other adults because it's all you know around either mums with them or dads with them and they're not kind of learning to amuse themselves too much or you know find other ways other people to talk to and especially I think being cut off from extended family who've perhaps been quite involved um and now you can't you know you can't go go to grandma's because you might make her sick you know all those kinds of messages that kids are getting so again yes you know and, and I keep sort of coming back to the idea of the parents being the management team you know that they're the ones who are running this little family but I'm seeing and I have seen over the past few few years more and more children who are taking over the family and they're, they're dragging the parents by the nose and the parents are usually trying to appease the children or stepping around on eggshells because they don't want the blow-ups and that again contributes to what you were saying earlier about the disempowerment of the parents you know they don't feel that they have the authority uh, to take charge and to, to make some decisions. And, and I'm not saying that because I believe children shouldn't be involved in decision-making, far from it. I think it's our job to teach children to make good informed choices. Um, but sometimes there isn't a choice and sometimes parenting is why you're paid the big bucks. You know, you have to make the unpopular decisions. Yeah. Um, and to have that vision and to work together in terms of, in, you know, what the goal of the, the family is, what the values are in the family, what messages you want to give your children, to me is very similar to running a small company. Yes. Um, that, you know, you, as you and I know, if you're working for a boss that you can't trust, or that boss is saying to you, look, I don't know how to be your boss anymore. You know, I've done everything I can and I can't, and I don't know what to do. And I can I go and get some help because, whoa, you know, you don't want to hear that. Um, and children don't want to hear that. Um, and quite often children will push and push and push until you kind of say, no, enough, you know, that's not what I'm going to, but we don't want them to push us to the brink before that happens. But a lot of today's parents feel that exercising authority is akin to being authoritarian. And I think it's really important that parents understand that's not what it is. It's providing leadership in the family. It's providing a kind of a, a nice secure place surrounded with some boundaries where the children know that you're not going to let them get themselves into trouble. You're not going to let them behave in a way that's not appropriate outside the family, you know, all kinds of things. So that safety net where the family is like a, a test tube, you know, where you can test out how you deal with teasing, how you deal with having to do things you don't want to do. And if the family isn't providing that within this little company, then the children aren't learning the kinds of skills that they're going to need to learn as soon as they go outside the family. And that can be very young. Of course, kids go to babysitters young, they go to preschool young. Uh, we don't want them to wait until they hit the workforce before they realize that there are boundaries in the world outside as well and you can't just do what you want. So that whole sort of metaphor or analogy of let's look at a family structure and let's kind of use some of that language, I find it's very helpful it's particularly helpful. I don't want to sound gender biased, but it's particularly helpful to dads. Dads are not very into the kind of the touchy feely language and how do you feel about, you know, looking at it in a, in a framework and being able to put other language to it. I found really helps parents to kind of get their act together and to, to be able to see how they can work together, even if they're incredibly different. And, and I don't know about you, but I find this up front uh, that parents will come in saying, we don't agree. We have different upbringing, you know, all the time. Yeah. And if he did it my way, it would be fine. Well, she doesn't need you know, She should do it. And, and I'm always saying to parents, always, it's an 18 year job at minimum. 
You've got yeah. two people you're going to hire to do this job. Are you going to hire two people who have exactly the same backgrounds, exactly the same skill sets, exactly the same experiences, exactly the same perspectives? Of course not. Nobody would do that. What you want are two people who bring different perspectives, who bring different ways of doing things, who have differences, uh, but don't blame each other for the differences. So, you know, part of getting your shit together is to kind of really take a good look at that and stop trying to clone each other and see if you can kind of, even if you're, you're separated, divorced, you don't like each other much. If you use this kind of neutral analogy, it helps you put it together without getting into all the blaming and all the fault and, and all the, if only you would, or if only you had. So it's, it, it provides a little bit of a, of a way of talking about things. It displaces it just, just a tiny bit yeah. from the emotional stuff. And, and, and it really does help parents um, to, to be able to work together in a way that benefits the children, but doesn't overly empower the children to the point where the children are the ones running the family. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You touched on so many important points there, but just the last point that you touched on, you know, where for children having this sense of them being in charge, that they're the ones running the family, that creates so much anxiety for children to feel like at a developmentally inappropriate age, they're the ones in charge. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's very interesting because it's quite subtle sometimes how parents give that message to the children. And one one thing I'm always trying to, parents will tell me all the time, well, I have to do this. You know, I have to make him something different for, for lunch because he doesn't want to eat. I have to sit with her while she does her homework. And I, oh, that's a red light that flashes for me it's not have to no because if it's have to somebody's making you whereas if you choose to you can choose to make her something different to eat you can choose to help with homework you can choose to drive him somewhere you can choose that really gives you back that sense if you if you can choose to then you can choose not to and it gets you away from the idea that the child is actually running things and you're just kind of running around after them like a servant um, and I see way too many families where the children are doing that, where the parents are bending over backwards and crawling around and groveling. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you didn't like that. And then say to me, well, I had I had to make him something. And, and I really try and alert parents to that because it's in our inner talk. We yes. think we have to. Yeah. And I think the whole idea of being able to choose to do something. Fair enough. I don't argue with somebody's choice. If somebody's choosing to pick up after their child all the time, that's their choice. When they come to me and say that their child doesn't know how to pick things up for themselves, then we can look at why they're choosing to pick, pick things up uh, for them. Yeah. Because clearly, if you're picking up for them, they're not going to have to do it. Yeah. So it's a question of a little bit of switching language there that can be a huge step in, in re-empowering the parents. And, mm -hmm. and parents will then start to talk about why they choose to. Yeah, you know, the language is so powerful. That kind of self-talk is so powerful. I hear it um, through my work as well. Right, right. And parents will say to me, no, no, I have to. And I say, well, why? Do, well, I have to because. Well, if you have to because, then the because is the reason you chose to. Yes. Like, I have to because. I had, I had one, actually, a young man tell me, you know, he had to take his mom to the hospital. Actually. You didn't have to. Yeah. You chose to because you love her, you care for her, you didn't want to be, you know, at risk of, of something happening to her. So you chose to. 
we can't choose the things that happen to us. They happen to us. Yeah. But we can choose whether we're going to react in a certain way. And it's, it's an incredible burden off our shoulders, I think, once we realize that we do have some, some control over our lives. We do have some part to play and we can therefore change that if we're motivated to do so and if we work at it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think one thing that can be confusing for parents sometimes is the idea that you can have warmth and compassion and understanding and love, and that can also exist with, exist with boundaries, with firm leadership, with, you know, those, those two things um, are not mutually exclusive. And we go back to, you know, the earlier days with Diana Baumrein's description. Yeah, my favorite person. Yes. I know. I love her too. But it's that authoritative parenting style. It's that combination of the firm boundaries with the warmth and the understanding and that those two things can exist together. Um, so it doesn't mean that when you're putting a boundary in place that you have to be angry with the child while you're doing it. It doesn't mean that. So I think that distinction is always important because sometimes I, I notice parents seem to have um, difficulty with that kind of understanding that there is room for both, that they can exist together. Uh, and, and I hear parents say quite often, oh, I don't want to be strict or that's too strict. Or, no, 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 we don't, don't use that word that's the s word we don't use you know the f word and the s word we don't use fault and we don't use strict it's not being strict it's being firm and it's being clear it's being yeah. clear what is the child's job uh is that clear to the child what they need to be doing um job description should always be written in terms of what you want and not what you don't want um i when i first started as a as a supervised psychologist I had a supervisor whose way of teaching me was to pick me up when I did things wrong and kind of say no we don't do things that way and then I would say okay that you know what is the protocol and I would be told use your judgment and it made me incredibly anxious because you know if, if, if there's a way of doing it I'll do it I want to please people I'll do it uh, but don't give me a job description that says don't run don't jump don't do don't, don't what I want to hear is when you're by the pool, please walk. Yes. Right. Your job when it's a mealtime is to keep one part of you on a chair. Yeah. That's your job. And that language is speaking about, again, what we want to see as opposed to yeah. what we don't want to see. Hands to yourself as opposed to yeah. don't kick your brother. <laughs> don't exactly. 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 Because that also feeds into the whole idea that we want to pick up the behaviors that we can reinforce yeah. and we reinforce by commenting. So if we're commenting on the negative behaviors, then that's going to be what the child notices. And, you know, for some reason, completely still foreign to me, despite all the years I've done this, I don't really understand why children would rather have you yelling at them than not engaging with them, but they sort of would. Uh, so if we give negative attention, that kind of reinforces something in a way. So, but again, you know, the whole sort of analogy and the language of the small business of small company you know in a company where nobody's fired and nobody quits you know the thing is you train people to do the job that you want them to do and the ultimate job is that we're raising adults you know we're raising people to go out into the world and be managers of their own companies um, and so that's the, the ultimate goal and so we need yeah we respect them and we give them jobs to do and we train them you know how to kind of move through a process of getting better at what it is they're supposed to do. Uh, but as you say, that's done in an atmosphere of nurturing and safety um, and positiveness. And, 
you know, I'm certainly no bleeding heart. And I know very well that being a parent is probably the most frustrating thing I've ever done. Um, just because it doesn't always turn out the way that you want it to. And, and things do come out of left field. And you do end up, I think, especially psychologists and, and mums, you know, most of us realize there's that little voice in our head that's the psychologist looking at the voice that's the mum saying, what on earth are you doing? You know, <laughs> you know, like, you know you're supposed to be saying, I understand, sweetheart, you know, and I understand that you're not, and, and what you're doing is saying, for goodness sake, don't be so ridiculous. You know, that's part of, that's part of being a mom. It's, it's not easy. Part of being a dad too. I mean, it's not, I'm, I'm saying moms, but I'm really generic. It's a parenting thing. We, you know, some people are born to it. Some people are not. Um, if you're lucky enough and, you, and your first trainee is one that's compliant and, and goes with the flow and does what you ask them to do and says, mommy, is there anything else I can do for you? Daddy, can I help you? That's lovely. And then your second born is guaranteed to be the one who's the burr under the saddle. You know, yeah. So you're dealing with these trainees who have different skills and different ways of doing things. And, and you know, I think that the whole idea that my, my whole goal is to pull the parents together so that they can work as a team. Yeah, we've got some, you know, I, I'm saying to, you know, to them, there are two places you need to be consistent. One is in the in the value that you're trying to espouse, you know, so education is important. Or in this family, we're, we're polite to people. You know, in this family, we respect other people's privacy. So you've got a sort of a mission statement kind of value. How you get there will depend on all of the skill sets and all the experiences you bring to it. So yeah. there's many different ways to get from A to B, but as long as you're both going to B, then that's fine. And children will adapt to that. The other place you need to be very consistent is if you promise a child something. Yeah. So if you promise them something and then you don't follow through, a lot of things happen. It's not just that they don't trust you, but they start to question their own judgment because they've expected something. It didn't turn out or they've made a choice. Maybe, you know, they've gone down a particular path even though they know that that's going to go off the end of a cliff. But if they get to the end of the path they've chosen and the cliff isn't there and they don't fall off it and the world goes on as they thought it was going to, then they don't trust their own choices. When they next come to a, to a fork in the road and they're told that one thing is at one end and they're told that a different thing is at the other, at the other end, they don't know what to pick. So that, I think that's more insidious uh, than not trusting the person who promised and I think if you're promising something, you're much more likely to follow through than if you threaten. Yeah. Um, because if you threaten, it's probably something that makes you feel badly for doing it. You're taking something away or you're you know, not doing something that you said you, that they thought was going to happen. So we're reluctant to do that. When we get to the point, we're reluctant to do that. So then we'll back off. We'll do the endless talk, 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 talking again. Um, whereas if we promise, if we promise that when you've done that, Absolutely, you can do so. You know, as yeah. soon as you've finished your, your whatever, of course you can go out and play. Yeah. Rather than saying, no, you're not going out to play until you've finished. It puts us in an incredibly negative role. And you think, again, if you're the management in a little company, talking to your employees that way, well, you're not going to get your lunch break if you don't make, you know, 500 widgets before noon. That's no way to be. It makes us un unhappy. It makes the kids unhappy. But when we promise something, then we can follow through. And if we've promised a child something because they've made that choice, like I promise you, you can go outside when you finished your, your homework. 
the other parent then finds it easier to get on board because they know that the child has understood that choice, yes. that it's the child's choice. And if the child has chosen not to have access to their electronics, or they've chosen not to go to a birthday party, whenever that's going to happen again, um, then it, it's a little easier then for management to get their act together and to be able to stand behind it. Exactly. Yeah, it, it really changes a lot. And I find that coming at it from that perspective, it takes the power struggle out a lot, right? Because then it's not the parent doing or not doing to the child. It's really up to the child. And then the parent can actually, you know, provide a bit of understanding about the fact that they didn't make that choice, right? So the role completely changes there. Absolutely. It's, it is a game changer, that one. And it, it yeah. takes a while. It's a mindset shift. You know, it takes a while to kind of get into it. But absolutely, um, it, it gives the child accountability. Um, it makes it clear to children, even from a quite a young age, that they do have some instrumental control over their lives. You know, they can choose. And it does make it easier to be sympathetic. You know, gee, that's interesting. You're still, you're still, you know, you haven't started your homework yet, or you haven't put the dishes in the dishwasher yet. That's interesting because I thought you wanted to go outside and play. And, you know, I'm wondering why you would, you would choose not to do that well i didn't choose you you said it no i didn't say you couldn't go i didn't say you couldn't watch tv or use your ipad or whatever i said as soon as this is done you can do it yeah so, and then you start to use words like it's up to you that's your decision yeah it's it's um a really really helpful way of, of framing it and changing that language makes such a difference a game changer just like you said and i think the other part of it too you touched on this a little bit before but just the idea of boundaries for children we realize that with children part of their job part of what they do developmentally is to push wherever the boundary is that's just part of what children do so if there is no boundary or the boundaries really really far out they're still going to find that point and push against it. If there's no point there, there's a lot of insecurity that comes with that. Um, what, in your experience, what do you find helpful for children when boundaries are put into place? Oh, I think the benefits are multiple. Um, first of all, you know, on a, on a macro scale, they're learning that there are boundaries in the world. You know, out there, there, there are boundaries. You're not allowed, I mean, even at our age where we're autonomous, we work for ourselves, there are still things we can and can't do. Um, I think that's important. I think that you're absolutely right. It's, it's a child's job to push, especially a young adolescent. Um, an adolescent is their job to find where the boundaries are. It's their job to do that. So they are going to push and they're going to step over the line. So one of my approaches to that is then you've got to set the boundaries fairly close. I mean, not tight. But you know that then, in fact, there are two boundaries. There's the one that, that you put out there. And then there's the one where, you know, it's like over my dead body. Is he actually going to do that boundary? And what I find certainly in, in current parent parenting philosophies is that we, we have to give children lots of space. And like, no, I think children need to, to, they need to step over the boundary. They need to push the boundary. But if that pushing pushes them into an unsafe place, then the boundary is set too far away. I can remember when I was at school, I went to a school in London in England and um, we had uniforms and we had all kinds of rules and it was, you couldn't run down a hallway. You know, if you ran down a hallway, you got sent to the headmistress. And if you, you know, all of these things, you know, we had to wear regulation underwear 
you know, and if you were caught without regular, you know, I mean, goodness sake. Um, but these days, if you think about it, what kinds of things trigger a response in schools or in parents? Is weapons or assault or, you know, sexual impropriety. I mean, oh my goodness. We need, if we had rules that said you had to walk down the left side of the hall, and you know, I mean, wearing hats in class is a good example. You're not allowed to wear hats. Yeah. If you if you wear a hat, it's not dangerous, yeah. right? So if you push that boundary, it's not dangerous. You're still, somebody's still going to say, you know, Jeffrey, have I, you know, how many times have I told you that we don't like? Okay, well, well and you grumble and moan, but at least it's showing children that there are limits and that those limits are safe limits. In other words, they can push them a little bit. Um, and it's not unsafe and they can and, and certainly with with firstborns especially that will push the limit it does affect our parenting a little bit right we'll say oh yeah maybe that was a little you know maybe that I'm being a bit overprotective I can let the boundary out a bit but I think children do need to know it's there I equate it to when they're toddlers you know when they first will will explore away from you they'll explore away from you but you need to stay there so that when, when they come back you're still where they left you yeah. And I think it's similar with teenagers with values. They will ch test your values. They will wander away from your values. But when they come back, they want you to be there. They want to be able to grumble about you. Oh, my mom won't let me. Well, I would come out, you know, around the back of Max Milk and, and smoke a joint with you, but my mom won't let me. It's much easier for a teenager to say than, no, I don't think I want to do that. So it's that kind of the, not that we don't change our values. I'm not saying that we do, yes. but I think we need to be as consistent as possible. As I said earlier, with, with those values that, you know, I mean, our, our son's first sentence was literally mommy, no like guns. <laughs> That's true. Mommy, no like guns. Um, mommy never had, you know, anything like that in the house. So he made them out of spaghetti and Barbie dolls, but nonetheless, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, so be it. Um, but that idea that you have these values, those are the boundaries, that's the vision. And so your daily rules or guidelines, whatever you want to call them, are consistent with those, with those values. And that sense of, you know, that I'm not going to be allowed to get out of control. I'm not yeah. going to be allowed to, you know, hurt somebody else. I think that gives children a real sense of, of security. And, and I certainly find that the children, the families that I'm seeing who have children with anxiety problems, which is probably 95%, um, have to become aware that children with anxiety need, need boundaries even more than everybody else because the boundaries give them the scope within those boundaries to feel safe, to make decisions that they know are going to be monitored or, you know, and that, that they can gradually sort of desensitize themselves to some of the things they have to deal with. So I think boundaries are absolutely critical. They're critical, not just for physical safety, they're critical for emotional safety yeah. as well and psychological safety in general. So yeah, you don't have to be rigid. It's not a jail. Um, I've had parents say, I don't want to oppress my children. Well, setting boundaries for your children is not oppressive. Yeah. It's normal, it's necessary, and it's something that they're naturally going to run into. Yeah. Yeah. It really creates that sense of security for them where you are the secure base. You touched on this a little bit earlier, but one thing that I find a lot of parents struggle with is 
making that transition through different developmental stages and learning that, oh my gosh, what was working when they were children, it's not quite working in the same way as adolescents. And I found that in particular through the pandemic, that that's been a big struggle for parents who have had kind of um, that preteen into teenager years throughout the pandemic. They're really struggling with that transition. Um, So this conceptualization can also apply to teenagers Yes, sounds yes like. absolutely absolutely and of course you know I mean the big buzzword everywhere is collaborative problem solving you know to kind of involve the children in the problem solving and I'm all for that I think it's aspirational I think you know it would be nice if we could do that all the time and certainly as children get older being able to sit down with them and say look we have a problem here you know we've asked you umpteen times to do such and such and you're not doing it you know, how do you think we can resolve this? You know, it's something we need to resolve. That's lovely. And there are some times when you have to leave the choices up to them or you go sort it out. You know, you, you solve that problem that's yours to solve. Or there are times when you say, no, this is how it's going to happen. This is what will be happening. You know, I will not be driving you. It's not collaborative at all. <laughs> yeah, there's no room there. But figuring out um, which moments, which place you're in, right? Whether there is flexibility there or not. In a previous episode, we were talking a fair bit about the idea of responding as opposed to reacting, where in responding, there's room for deliberate choices. There's room for really trying to put forth the approach that works best for the child, that's best suited for the child, as opposed to bringing in our own anxieties or stress or all of the things that we carry with us as parents. Like, oh my gosh, I'm a psychologist. child needs to be behaving in a public setting kind of thing. I use the term proactive, you know, try and be proactive rather than reactive, although of course you're going to have to react at some point. But the proactive part comes when parents say that like they've got an ongoing problem, it keeps happening. Every single night when it's bath time, the child, you know, takes an hour, okay, so let's be proactive, let's have a plan. Yes, let's get ahead of it. And this is where I talk about management meetings. This is where management goes behind closed doors. And this is where you have your arguments. I mean, we all know we're not supposed to argue in front of the children. I don't know too many families that actually can manage that. You do. And and I don't have a problem as long as you're not fighting all the time. Children can see that you can disagree and how you can resolve disagreements. I think if you keep disagreements from the children, it's a little bit of a fake situation. But I think parents do need to go behind closed doors. Think of it in terms of a company you don't want Two of them, the managers in your in the company you're working for, having arguments in front of you about company yeah. policy, right? Because that completely makes you not trust them, and you're not, you know, and and then so you'll take over because these two don't know what they're doing. So I think it's very important for parents to have, I think, couple time. That's a whole different issue, but also sort of parenting time. You know, where you're you're actually we've got this problem. You know, what what are we going to do? And the only way you can really do that. I think successfully is to understand that you you may have different approaches. There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. One of you is quite likely to be the black and white parent just by default because somebody's got to draw the line in the sand when it, it has to be drawn. 
often comes from our personality, our background. You know, we're, we're decisive people. We hate loose ends. We want order. We like order. We like predictability. And the other parent is often what I call the great parent who does a lot of negotiating and a lot of begging and pleading and cajoling. And let's discuss this. Then we've had three months of temper tantrums every day because the child actually hasn't agreed. And so every day, you know, and then what happens is that the, the great parent will get exhausted, will call in the black and white parent and the black and white parent will come in and say, you bed now or sit down and finish your meal. And that will be fine because the child will respond usually. But then the other parent will say things like, oh, that's not very nice. And you're not being very collaborative. And you didn't ask him how he was feeling. Like, no, you know, there's room for both. It's not that the other parent is wrong. And the problem in the gray parent, black and white parent combination is that if you try and be the other type, in other words, if a black and white parent tries to be the gray parent, they're not as good at it as the gray parent. They haven't had the experience that for them, it hasn't worked. So they're pulled back to being the black and white parent again. For the great parent to try and be black and white is equally difficult. They're not as good at it. They try and draw a line in the sand and then they'll, they'll negotiate the line. So it really, that, that's a classic situation where there's a lot of parent blaming going on back and forth. You're too hard on them. You never give them any leeway. Or well, you're always giving in to them. And, and parents are back to the wall, both of them. And there's no room for them to move away because, you know, the black and white parent is doing all the decision making and probably resenting it because they're the bad cop. The other one is feeling ineffective because the negotiations and the collaborations aren't working. And what they need to do is be able to recognize that there's room for both, to be able to spell each other off. Uh, to try and figure ways of, for a gray parent to be more consistent and to act sooner. Um, because what I found is that the gray parent frequently is the, is the target for the lengthy temper tantrums and the badgering and the whining and because the child knows instinctively that they can wear that parent down. And then that dynamic of the other parent coming into rescue, you know, how that creates um, a dynamic between the child and the other parent and how they see that other parent now, right? As being in need of rescuing and kind of I'll push the boundary until the other one steps it in. Does. And, and it's interesting because quite often um, when, when parents, when, when one parent is trying to rescue the other one, I'm always trying to kind of make it clear that the idea of rescuing the parent who's feeling ineffective and probably being ineffective at that moment is not to take over and say, well, you don't do it for him, do it for me. Yeah. I think the trick is you back the other parent. You say, what did your dad ask you to do? Or what did your mother ask you to do? Not, well, I'm asking you, so please do it for me because now I can be the good person. No, if, if mom said that's the way it is, that's the way it is. And then in the management meeting, you can debrief. Yeah. So being united. That united front, I mean, it shouldn't be impenetrable. I, I think that that kind of the pendulum swings a little bit too far the other way. There needs to be some room for the child's views, for their perspectives to be to be heard. But again, not to grovel in front of the child. Oh, we've done a terrible job. I'm sorry. You know, yes, you, you, you're right. We should be better. We should be. No, 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 no. Because that tips that authority balance again. It tips the leadership thing. You know, the, all of the research on leadership parallels the Diana Baumrein's research on parenting styles. You know, management styles are very similar. If you've got an authoritative manager, 
who is pleasant, likes you, you know, welcomes you. We have lovely times together, but who will still say, no, this is, you know, this is my decision. Then that creates a climate of respect in the workplace. And you see similar characteristics in the workers in companies who have leadership like that, as you do the children and families who have leadership like that. So I think thinking of parent, parenting as a leadership role, because it is our job. Yes. You know, our, our children are, are, are totally dependent on us. It takes 18 years to fledge a child. They're a minimum. Giraffes are born knowing how to do everything, you know, but not children. So, but I, I do think that, you know, once you can sort of work, get the parents to, to at least be on, on a team. Again, it's difficult if you, if you don't have another parent, then you're the management team. If you're a single parent, you're the management team. In many respects, it's easier because you don't have to take everything to committee and get a motion passed to do things. You can do that. But also you get all of the responsibility. Um, in a single parent home where there's certainly where there's more than one child, the parent often feels outvoted. Um, and it takes a little bit of empowerment, I think, to, to recognize that in a family, it's not a democracy. The leader is not elected. They're self-appointed. So it's, you know, as the term's been used, benign dictatorship or benevolent dictatorship, or as one of my husband's bosses used to say that he ran his department as a democracy as long as everybody agreed with him, uh, which is kind of a little bit like in a family, but a single parent will often feel outnumbered and therefore outvoted. Um, but I again remind parents that their vote is worth N plus one, where N is the number of children involved. Uh, same for teachers. Um, teachers are always one teacher vote can outweigh the entire class. Yeah. Uh, you can take into account what everybody else wants. You can understand there might be some resentment if you make a decision. You know, that's where you need to put on your big girl panties and, and deal with it. It's interesting, though, thinking about it from this perspective of a small business, you know, and thinking about being an employee, for example, and how we would feel if our leadership team didn't know what they were doing. They're trying to figure their stuff out in front of yeah, us. It's, it's interesting, Mary, because it does resonate with a lot of people. You know, I think most of us at some time or other have been in a position, whether it was a supervisor through, you know, a prof in university with a teacher in school. Now, as you say, if you've got a boss, even if they don't know what you're doing, they're doing, you want them to fake it, right? You want them to, you want to believe they know what they're doing. And if they're getting help with it, you want that to be kind of, you don't want to know about that. Yeah. You don't want to be questioning who's in charge because then the responsibility feels like it's falling on you somehow and you don't necessarily want that. Right. But one of the complicating factors these days is for whatever reason, and I think it's been cumulative again over a number of decades, parents really believe that they need to do what their children want, um, that what makes their children happy. And if we raise children thinking that they should always be happy with, with our decisions, that we should always make the decisions that they want to make, if they offer an opinion that that basically is a rule that we have to follow, you know, then life is going to be incredibly difficult. And as soon again, as soon as a child gets outside the family and meets an authority figure, they're not going to be as special. Nobody else is going to want to cater to every whim of theirs. And I know because I talked to a lot of kindergarten JK SK teachers. A one kindergarten teacher told me that a child on the first day of school told her that um, mommy says that, you know, if you ask me to do something, I have to check with mommy first. Well, no, you don't. 
you know, all that kind of thing. So this whole idea that we have to keep our children entertained all the time, that we have to do things they like, that we can't put, we have no way of making them do things that they don't like. And we still have to do things. I have to do my taxes, even if I'm not happy. I have to pay my taxes, even if I'm not happy. Sometimes we have to do things we don't like to do. Absolutely. And I think most, I think that's one of those tapes that comes with childbirth. You know, I think it's in your head, like (laughs) one that says, you know, this is not a hotel. Uh, Don't treat the place like a hotel. Um, If you don't like it, you know, you can leave. All those tapes that are born with it with a child. It's one, another one of those. Um, so yeah, that this kind of the, the idea that you've got to keep the employees happy at all times, uh, that you can never put anything in place that they don't like, really contributes to a lack of resilience in a child. Um, and I'm always when I'm asked to do talks, that's the most common thing I'm asked to do: talk about raising resilient children. We raise resilient children; we got to toughen them up. You know, we don't raise resilient children by mowing the lawn in front of them so that they don't have to, you know, they've got a path to, to follow. And it's that kind of way of thinking rather than thinking in terms of, oh my goodness, I'm going to upset my child if I put a boundary there. Yes, you may, you may upset them. Um, we can explain it. They may not agree with us. Uh, parents are very, very commonly mix up giving a child a reason and reasoning with the child, especially little children don't have the ability to control their behavior by talking to themselves yet. And especially not if it's something that they're compelled to do, like hit their brother. You know, it's worth doing your time. You know, so don't bleat at them. Stop talking. If they're getting up after they've gone to bed and coming out into the living room and saying, I can't sleep. You know, I used to say to my kids, well, nor could I, darling, if I was standing up in the middle of the living room talking to people. Um, but you don't interact. You just take them by the hand and you take them back. Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. Oh, yeah, you mean I, I'll be ignoring him? I'll be, no, 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 no. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying don't keep expecting. You know, you tell him once, one reminder, he doesn't need to hear you 17 times. So if you're saying to me, well, you know, he never listens or she never listens and I, you know, I have to tell him, I have to tell him 17 times. Actually, you don't have to. You're choosing to. Um, and if you're choosing to, then think, why are you choosing to? Is he, you know, does he not understand that it's bedtime? Does he not understand it's time to, to switch that off? Those kinds of things. So really, again, management skills, you know, trying to empower parents to, to not be afraid of following through with what the family plan is. Yeah. What would you say about parents who are struggling with sibling dynamics, like that sibling rivalry or, you know, like maybe this expectation that their kids are going to be best friends and a lot of disappointment when they're not? What would you say to those parents? Well, certainly I think frenemies is the best description. You know, sometimes you're best friends and sometimes you can't stand each other. Uh, I think the, 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 the issue that's in common, that it is in common with most families who are dealing with that as a real problem, it happens, it's normal, as a problem is because they're trying to treat the children equally. So what happens is, again, we've got to please them both. We don't upset anybody. So if one gets a bean, the other one gets a bean. Doesn't matter what the age difference is, doesn't matter what the need is. If one gets a bean, you have to somehow give the equivalent to the other one. And I'm always reminding parents, again, that fair and equal are not synonymous. A child's definition of fair is equal. But if you, if you start giving beans to each of them, every time one gets one, then you're setting up a rivalry. You're setting up a competition. Yeah. So if one gets something, if one does something, if one, then the other one wants it. 
And so you tend to, you know, you, you, I mean, I've met families where everybody gets a present. If it's one child's birthday, the other kids all get presents. Well, come on, you know, I mean, that's your special day, your birthday. Um, and the others have to wait for theirs. Like, you know, oh, well, they're not going to like that. No, no, it's too bad. Because then the competition will come through. Um, and where I see it most often is if I'm asked to kind of consult on the, the oldest child in a family who's acting out, who's coming out of their bedroom after they've gone, you know, like in your space, in your face. And quite often the issue is that both kids or three kids all go to bed at the same time. So the oldest one is trying to kind of carve out some time for him or herself that where the others don't get it, you know? So there are perks for being a senior trainee. There are, yeah. right? There are. And what you have to watch for, especially, is if you've got a more introverted oldest child and the next one is quite a pusher. The next one is the union leader in the family. <laughs> and that the younger one is the one who's going to be pushing. And it's quite difficult to allow that introverted older child who doesn't speak up for their needs as much to, to again, don't want to overuse the term empowered, but to empower them so that they have something. And the other one is basically told, you're not old enough. You're not getting it. Um, yeah, so I, I find that that's quite common, quite common. And, and certainly working with, with the parents, trying to understand the personalities of the children and, and how certainly the introversion, extroversion thing comes up all the time. Um, the, the whole kind of, you know, are you a decision maker? Are you somebody who likes to mull things over? Are you more of a thinker, ponderer? That comes up a lot. Um, but in a way, I mean, having some sort of, I'm not saying competition, but some sort of uh, opportunity in a family to have somebody around who's pushy when you're not. Uh, you know, somebody who speaks up when you don't. Or to see that your sibling actually gets more by being quiet. You know, that kind of learning. and Having some opportunity to practice a bit of teasing. And I'm not, I'm not yeah. talking about brutal teasing. I'm talking about a little bit of teasing, a little bit of pushy, you know, not physical. I don't like physical stuff. That's just one of my things. But yeah. it's, not, it's not harmful. It, it teaches them how to deal with somebody that's difficult to deal with. Yeah. And as an older child, I can speak to the fact that you get blamed for things. And the younger ones tend to learn how to get you into trouble. You know, so it's important to watch for that quiet little girl whose lovely blue eyes fill up with tears because her mean brother took something away from her when in fact she actually provoked it <laughs> and looked at him in a funny way and kind of behind everybody's back, you know, thumbs the nose and, and then looks all innocent and starts with the tears and, you know, who gets the blame, who gets sent to his room. So that whole dynamic as well is important, but yeah, sibling rivalry can be difficult, but my, my approach to that is giving parents permission to treat their children differently. That makes a lot of sense. And also, like you said, really helps them to figure things out together amongst themselves. Yep. I wish that I had you for so much longer because I have about a million more questions that I want to ask well, you, you. You know me, I never stop talking. <laughs> you give me the space, I'll fill it. 
I find that for a lot of families right now, like you've talked about this over the past few decades, and especially now with so much access to information, it's like it's really this double-edged sword. That it's a good thing, but it also can be really confusing sometimes that there's just so much out there. Um, and I wondered if you had three takeaways that you could share with our listeners um, that you would want parents to know to help them get their acts together. Yeah, I've, I've covered all of these, I think, you know, in, in some detail throughout this podcast. Um, I think the first one, the absolute overriding one is to give yourself permission to be a parent. Yeah. Give yourself permission to be the leader in the family. Don't feel badly about it. Part of the problem with having all the books and everything out there is you think there must be the right way to do it and you're constantly looking for it. No, just give yourself permission to be parents, to try to be authoritative, you know, with the warmth and the and the boundaries. Sometimes we don't feel very warm, you know, our feelings go up and down, but that's that's something I would say above all. And that's the response I get from people that I work with and people when I give talks that thank you for, you know, I, I kind of thought I would, but I, I haven't felt comfortable. Number one. Number two, again, is to, to just stress to work as a team if you possibly can. Not to clone each other, not to look for, you know, but to, to work as a team, to have those meetings behind the closed doors. Don't be managers who argue in front of the employees or discuss what their plan is going to be. Don't be afraid of that and come out with a united front if you can, even if it's just on one or two things. You can agree to disagree, but that's how teams work. So that's number two. And then the third one will be the, the stressing that you don't have to, you choose to. And if you can pick yourself up saying, oh, I have to take him, try and reword it. It makes a huge difference. No, I'm choosing to because I can't stand the problem. If I don't, then I'm choosing to. So that the whole the theme of that really is empowerment um, and to, to, you know, go with your gut. You know your child better than anybody else. If you're looking for help, it's you're looking for a management consultant. You're not looking for somebody to take over. And I think that that's really quite validating for parents to, to know that. So I hope that's helpful. That's incredibly helpful. And really a big part of our goal in, in doing all of this and doing this podcast is to help parents feel empowered. It's such a big part of it because you're right that, you know, when we provide support for families, we're there maybe one day out of the week, for example, in an office setting, not at home when all of this stuff is happening. So the most powerful way often to help the children is really to help the parents feel more empowered in their role. Um, so everything you shared has been so helpful in, in doing that. And, you know, it's been such a pleasure for me to have, you know, another opportunity to learn from you and to spend this time with you. So thank you so much for joining me today. And I really hope that the information that you shared is as helpful for all of our listeners as it was for me. I hope so too. And thanks, Mary. It's always a pleasure to be in your company.